This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Leah Liebowitz, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Mark Oppenheimer and Stephanie Butnick. This week, we're thrilled to share with you our annual Passover show. Because, you know, it's almost time for the Seder. And for so many of us, this is going to be the first Seder in two years that feels, well, almost normal. The first Seder may be in a very long time when we're all back in person, around the table, grateful to be healthy and to be together. So when we thought about what we'd like to do this year on the show and in real life, we figured out this wasn't the year to hop back on Zoom or to rock that 15-minute super short Seder or to break out those plague-themed hand puppets or any other doodad designed to make our seminal holiday more relatable. This year, we want to do the opposite. We want to lean all the way into tradition. What does that mean? We're Jews, so tradition, like everything else, can mean a whole bunch of things. For some, it'll mean embracing the formal parts of the holiday they rarely bother with, like reading that part of the Haggadah that comes after the meal, or actually cleaning the house of all chametz, all unleavened bread products. For others, it'll mean connecting with some general custom, like making gefilte fish from scratch or putting on goggles and scraping that fresh horseradish root. For others yet, it'll mean plugging into old and abandoned family traditions, even if they're banal, like eating macaroons from a box rather than bothering with a fancy kind or singing that old socialist song Zeta used to sing around the table when he was still alive. Whatever your entry point into tradition may be, this year we're going old school exploring all the ways we could make this ancient holiday feel extremely personal, so relevant, and deeply moving. So pour yourself a cup of wine, or four, and let our very unorthodox Seder begin. Now look, this is a holiday episode, and we felt we needed some music. So we turned to Rabbi Josh Warshawski, a nationally touring Jewish musician, song leader, and composer, to help us kind of get a little taste of what the Seder should sound like musically, because it turns out that even the Haggadah's table of contents, you know that stuff in the beginning when you say the Kadesh or Chatz, all that stuff, has a special tune to it. Check Josh Warshawski out. If you want to hear more from Rabbi Josh Warshawski, check out our feed next week where we will air the entire interview along with some delightful musical nuggets for Passover.
Our next segment features everyone's favorite, relatable, lovable millennial host, Stephanie Butnick, the one who previously proudly streamed high holiday services and used to consider a perfect bagel and locks to be a transcendent religious experience. And so, as she freely admits in the next segment, she's never really done the whole ridding her house of chametz before Passover. But this year, she is going all in, taking spring cleaning to biblical proportions. And because there's a tradition of selling all of your chametz, all of your unleavened bread products to a trustworthy Gentile friend or associate, you will hear this show's producer and editor, Robert Scaramuccia, make a delightful guest appearance. Join Stephanie and Robert as they engage in the big clean. Each year when Passover rolls around, I grab the boxes of pasta in my kitchen and shove them on the top shelf of my cabinet. Up go the crackers, the cookies, all the good stuff. It's my vague attempt at clearing my home of chametz, or leavened food, for the holiday. Passover is known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The story goes that when the ancient Israelites fled Egypt, they left so quickly that there wasn't enough time for their bread to rise. Jews commemorate that exodus in a number of ways, most literally by eating matzah. Almost as important as eating matzah is the prohibition on eating leavened food, the Passover persona non grata. There's an elaborate multi-step ritual for ridding your home of chametz before the holiday, something far more intricate than shoving a few pretzels on a high up shelf. And this year, I'm gonna do it. To guide me on my journey, I enlisted the help of Rivka Slunem, Associate Director at the Chabad Center for Jewish Student Life at Binghamton University. You have to rid your entire home and all of your possessions of arch enemy number one called chametz. Chametz would be things like bread, crackers, pasta, and just a million things that actually have chametz in it that you wouldn't think of, like uh, vinegars made out of wheat. It's chametz. Ketchup has vinegar. It's chametz, and so on and so forth. So where would you start? I would say the first places would be the bedrooms, the places least likely to be trafficked with chametz. Okay, chametz cleaning diaries, part one of unknown. I'm in the bedroom and I have my vacuum, I have my paper towels, I have like a little duster, and I'm gonna get started. And here you would be doing, uh, you know, a little bit more of a deep clean than your regular pedestrian cleaning up your room. Uh, Yes, you're vacuuming in the corners, Uh, you might vacuum down the mattresses. I'm under the bed, I don't know if you heard that. Bed update. The, you know, the frame of the bed and wash all the linens and wash all the curtains. So I have one of the feather dusters. I mean, I will say this is a much belated cleaning. That's very dusty. Okay, what'd you say, the bed frame? Ooh, very dusty, okay. Some people will go as far as rifling through all of their drawers and, and whatnot. I feel like, you know, like back of the drawers is something that doesn't get a lot of play. More dust. Guys, I'm starting to like judge myself a little bit. And I think that there's great, there's great beauty in the process, in the thought process that has to accompany it and great resonance in in that uh, spiritual journey. Ooh, that's a cobweb, okay. Maybe someone has been squirreling some chametz in there. The cat is very confused. 
I'm feeling good about the state of the bedroom. I think I'm ready to tackle the living room next. All it takes is one little child running around. You can expect to find Cheerios in every corner of your home. So you'd have to basically clean every room in your home. Oh, now we're talking. Couch cushion is off. The sweatshirt's off. I'm sweating. Oh, this is oh wow. Oh my god. Hey Ben, come look at this. Look how gross this is. I want you to see what's under our couch. This is where we sit every night. Look at what's under it. Wow, that's disgusting. <laughs> this is a, <laughs> this is a chocolate. The process of cleaning your house is really about spiritual stock taking and cleaning up what's inside. This isn't just sort of like a literal cleaning, it's sort of like a spiritual cleansing. And I'm choosing to see it that way because I think this is it's hard work and it, it kind of is easy to say like, why do I need to, oh, hold on, let me do my dining room chairs. I don't want to like say I blame Edith, but she definitely drops a lot of the food that she eats on the floor. Like, no shade to the babe, and I know she wasn't responsible for anything in the couch, because that's my, she's not eating food on the couch. With the crumbs cleaned up in the rest of my house, it was time to tackle the kitchen. I'll spare you the sound of me wiping down the counters and skip straight to sorting out the food that counts as hummates. We've come to the kitchen. I feel a little bit like motivated by what I've been through. And like, this does seem to be the most straightforward. Now we're in the fridge. I don't wanna brag, but there are a few beers in my fridge and they're gonna go. What else do we got here? Soy sauce, yep, that's... This is like when you really start reading the labels on all your stuff and like finding out what's in all your stuff. Guys, I'm like out of breath. <laughs> I don't know that this was supposed to be like an Olympic sport. Okay, so freezer is a little bit of a situation because that's where I have like, you know, your frozen hamburger buns, your hundreds of frozen bagels. I got frozen uh, torti corn tortillas, but actually corn tortillas are probably fine. Um, oh my, there's so many bagels in this freezer. Sorry, I'm just gonna have a snack. Whew, okay. I think that we have a choice in life. It's always before us. You can approach this as this, you know, onerous task, as this just horrible chore of cleaning, or you can approach it in a different mindset. So let's open the cabinets. Make a list of all the areas you have to clean, and it's going to be so satisfying to cross them off one by one. Box of pasta, a bye. This is, this is an orzo, I don't know if you can hear that. Um, ooh, whole wheat flour, bomba. Those are really stale, I'm throwing those out. That's another bag of bomba, not yet stale. That's an unopened bomba. Oh, I have a lot of bomba in this house. Um, what are these? Ooh, flackers, flaxseed crackers. These actually just look gross, I'm throwing these out. A container of seaweed, who gave me this? I wanna, s oh, white, white vinegar, you're out. This is sort of like what I imagine that Netflix show Leah likes is a cake, except it's called Is It Hametz? Um, and the answer to like everything in my cabinet is yes. Okay, well now I have no food left. Um, I'm gonna put all this food in one corner in sort of like the bottom right cabinet and I'm gonna 
close it and basically tape it up. And I'm gonna write Hamaze. Hamaze is taped up, kitchen is clean. I spared you the audio on that because you've heard me clean a lot, but the kitchen is like pretty sparkling. Um, not to brag, but it's very clean in here. So that's the cleaning part. Then on the eve of Passover, the night before the Seder, when it gets dark, you do what's called the search for chametz. This is a ritual search by candlelight and traditionally a feather, which is to help you if you find any crumbs, and a bag in which you're going to collect the chametz. Okay, so Liel has obviously given me a kit that in Hebrew says Berikat Hametz in it. Hold on, I'm gonna open it up. Like, it's really nice to just have a colleague who will just like pop over and, and hand you a Berikat Hametz kit. Okay, so what I have here is a, a feather, a wooden spoon, sort of like a very fancy tongue depressor, and a candle. Now, because presumably you have cleaned your home very, very well, a worry arose, well, what if you're just making this blessing over finding the chametz over not because you've cleaned so well? So the custom is to have somebody who isn't doing the actual search, somebody else, hide 10 pieces of bread or 10 pieces of chametz carefully wrapped so that you don't have any unwelcome crumbs left behind in strategic places around the house. And then the person or the persons who are doing the search will walk around from room to room with the candle, the feather, and the bag and look for those pieces. And of course, they're looking for chametz that might have inadvertently be left behind. Okay, Ben Cohen, have you hidden 10 pieces of, of bread of chametz around the house? No comment. Did you ask to be a part of this segment? No press. <laughs> okay, so I got this candle. Hold on, let me let me get a match. This is what I do for for the, for the J Crew. Okay, hold on. I have some matches. I'm gonna light this candle. Okay, well, and we shut the lights. When I look for the hamid, you know, and when I talk about walking around the house with that candle, I've often thought about how easy it is for us to overlook our own faults and to just say, ah, it's just a tiny bit, it's just a crumb, it doesn't really count, it's no big deal. But that walking around the house looking for the chametz has to be repeated, you know, internally. Our internal landscape is, is also probably cluttered <laughs> and uh, probably has some crumbs, at least crumbs lurking, that need to be cleaned out. And so it's a time of stock taking. Okay, I found one of the pieces of bread. <laughs> okay, I have another piece of bread. This is a fun game. I can see why kids like to do this. Okay, this flame is like really intense. Um, okay, after the search, we recite this. Kol hamira v'hamia di'ika v'rshitu. By the way, I'm reading the transliteration. This isn't like a heat reflex. Dela hamite udla v'yarte udla yedana le libatel v'le heve hefker ka'afradar. This is not a great transliteration. All hamates in my possession, which I have not seen or removed, or of which I am unaware, is hereby nullified and ownerless as the dust of the earth. Okay, I think we're good for the night. Um, See you back here tomorrow morning for the fun part. The final part of this is on the morning of. So this is the morning of Passover, the morning of the Seder, where there's a ceremonial burning 
of these 10 pieces, along with any other chametz that you may have found. Those are the three parts. Clean, search, and burn, obliterate. Good morning. I hope everyone slept well last night. <laughs> I'm going to recite a blessing and burn the damn chametz. It's actually this beautiful short prayer where we say, May it be your will, Lord our God and God of our fathers, that just as I remove the chametz from my house and from my possession, so shall you remove all extraneous forces. Remove the spirit of impurity from the earth, remove our evil inclination from us, and grant us a heart of flesh to serve you in truth. May all the wickedness be consumed in smoke, Remove the dominion of evil from the earth. Remove with a spirit of destruction and a spirit of judgment all that distresses the Shekhinah, which is the feminine aspect of the Godhead, the imminence of God's presence, just as you destroyed Egypt and its idols in those days at this time. Amen. Selah. All right, let's do this. All right. Burn, baby, burn. You know, the law of entropy dictates that what you're not building up is going to be falling apart on you. We know this. Um, and that's true spiritually as well. You know, we need to be paying attention to who we are and how we live and why we live and what it is we do. And uh, this is a good time. This helps us through that process. So that was the cleaning and the searching and the burning. But that's actually not always the end of the process, because there's still some chametz in my house, like the bagels and everything I stuck in the cabinet. Plus, there's a certain four-legged creature in this house who wasn't too into the idea of swapping out his food for a week. So I'm going to kick it to producer Robert Scaramuccia, our in-house Gentile, to explain one other legalistic way we can get rid of our chametz. I have never owned a cat. That may not seem relevant right now, but I promise you, it will be. Anyway, when you grow up Catholic, you think you know everything about Judaism. You know all about the Sabbath and unleavened bread and crushing unadulterated thousand pound guilt. But let's focus on the bread. When I first heard of Hamates, I thought that's all it was, leavened bread. Over Passover, you could eat, say, communion wafers, but not Wonder Bread. That's all. But as we heard from Rivka earlier, hamates can also be something like vinegar, which, last I checked, looks nothing like bread. I didn't get that. So I went to the closest thing I have to a local rabbi. I'm Eric Woodward. I am a rabbi here in New Haven, Connecticut at Bethel Kesser Israel Congregations, also known as Becky. The word chametz in Hebrew refers to fermented products, anything that sort of puffs up from the work of yeast. For example, um, beer or whiskey, even though we wouldn't think of them as puffy um, in the same way that things are leavened, any interaction between flour, rye, barley, spelter, oats with water that doesn't turn into matzah, by definition, counts as chametz. A lot of times, you just can't get rid of all these different kinds of hamates. You can't eat it, drink it, or burn it because it's just too valuable. Think about it in terms of liquor. That's expensive. What if your livelihood is that you actually own a distillery, right? And you're 
fermenting liquor and it takes years to do this. Do you just get rid of that every year? You just couldn't even go into that profession if you were doing that. That's where Mehirat Hamates comes in, the selling of Hamates. It's a legal mechanism by which you sell all of your Hamates to a non-Jewish person, and they will own this during the holiday of Passover, and it's all theirs. This takes a bit of explaining if you've never encountered it before. And I swear, this all leads back to host Stephanie Butnick and my lack of cats. To sell their hamates before Passover, a Jewish person meets up with a Gentile and they sign an actual physical contract. The contract says the non-Jew will buy all the hamates for some amount of money. The non-Jew makes a down payment on that purchase, but then purposely doesn't pay the rest. If they don't pay in full by the end of Passover, the contract is broken and all the hamates reverts back to the Jew. Everyone knows this is going to happen. So a lot of times, the hamates doesn't even leave the Jewish house. Mechirat hamates is actually a beautiful moment of legal creativity. It's not simply a legal fiction to make people's lives easier. It's something that allows for people to live their lives and really flourish as human beings while also having fealty to this law. How do we balance both fealty to the law and our need to live lives that are full and meaningful? So there's a trick built into the contract. You both sign it knowing you're going to break it. Rabbi Eric has a term for this. Jurisprudential creativity. But what does all this have to do with our intrepid host, Stephanie Button? What could I, even as a very helpful and generous Gentile on staff, possibly buy from her if she's already cleaned her house of her mates in a very dedicated and spiritual way? I'll let Rabbi Eric answer that one. One of the big questions with Hamates is what do you do with your pets? I am a new dog owner this year. I actually had to ask a friend of mine recently, what do you actually do? What I had always heard was that you sell your pets and your pet food to a non-Jew and they kind of take care of them over that Passover or you are really babysitting their pets. So, so the pet stays in your house like the rest of your mates, but it's now the non-Jews and you are babysitting their pet. Yeah, basically you are feeding that non-Jew's pet with that non-Jew's pet food. Here was my opportunity to help host Stephanie Butnick. Her cat, Cat Stevens, and all his hamatesy cat food are simply too valuable to eat or burn before Passover. And if she really wants to be free of all her hamates, Cat Stevens has to become mine. Which, if you think about it, is actually an incredibly kind thing to do on my part. Cat Stevens seems like a lot of responsibility. He shows up on our Zooms all the time, interrupting work meetings and Mazel Tov recordings and interviews with Gilbert Gottfried. Now, sure, in this situation, Stephanie would still have to take care of Cat Stevens, since I'll be letting her borrow him. But the sheer weight of his ownership would pass to my shoulders. And with an infant and a Ben Cohen to take care of, I'm sure Stephanie would appreciate that. And like I said, I've never had a cat or any pet at all. I had an ex-girlfriend who had a cat, but she hid under the bed every time I showed up. Haha, <laughs> yes, I do mean the cat. So while I've never owned a cat, I have been abandoned by one. 
And this feels like a much more sensible way to recover from that trauma than by getting my own permanent cat and paying my building's permanent $300 cat fee. I related all this in a very sane manner to Rabbi Eric, who was more than willing to facilitate this mate's sale. I want to be uh, uh, sure about this. So I get this contract from you. I make the changes I needed to make to make it relevant to our situation. Uh, hopefully I get Stephanie to sign it or she and I both sign it. And after that point, I just like, I, I own that Hamates. You will own that Hamates from the moment that Passover starts until the moment the Passover ends. And according to the terms of that contract, you will own any of Stephanie's pets, including Cat Stevens. Do you happen to have the contract like, like on hand or anything? Yeah, I, I can I can get it on my computer. Our printer is broken right now. Here we go. This is on the Rabbinical Assembly website. This is an English translation of the traditional Hebrew form for selling chametz. It says, I, the undersigned, have sold to blank, a non-Jew, from the hour listed below, all forms of chametz and suspected chametz, whether my owner authorized me to sell their chametz as detailed in the shtar. All forms of candy, chocolate, sweets, all animals, large and small, horses, birds, and fowl, which feed on chametz. And chametz mixtures with those who have authorized me have in partnership with a non-Jew. Whether chametz is mentioned is truly their own or that for which they are responsible, even if responsible only for negligence whether the responsibility is according to Torah law or civil protocol or by dint of lawlessness, whether the Hamates is with Stephanie and I met over Zoom, sending the contract back and forth as a PDF. land or in the waters, whether in wagons or the railroads, all such Hamates as listed above, I've sold to the aforementioned buyer in a complete and absolute sale without retaining any rights whatsoever. I'd made some logical modifications to the rabbinical assembly's contract with approval from Rabbi Eric. Could you please read the highlighted paragraph right underneath that? I think that's really the, the crux of this contract. The aforementioned category of animals is understood to include one cat, hereafter Cat Stevens, and all pet food required for his continued health. Mr. Scaramuccia shall fully own Cat Stevens, but will loan him back to Miss Butnick for care and general babysitting purposes. Miss Butnick waives all naming and photographic rights over Cat Stevens. Mr. Scaramuccia may, for instance, rename Cat Stevens for the duration of Passover or require daily photographic evidence of Cat Stevens' safety and general well-being or request any other action that may be understood to safeguard what is now Mr. Scaramuccia's cat and or cat food. <laughs> so to be clear, you're asking for cat pictures. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, I just need to make sure that my property is well safeguarded and taken care of. I, You know, I didn't see this for us, Robert, but here we are. And I'm really glad it's happening. You know, this really has been one long con over the past <laughs> two years of working here to not buy my own cat, but through the laws of Judaism, acquire one from one of my bosses. Robert, you could have just asked. <laughs> I know this all sounds kind of over the top, but this contract ended up being about a bit more than me getting my first cat. What's so fascinating to me is that there's a written contract at all. Coming from a Catholic tradition of water and oil, it's wild to sign something. Something changed by human hands. Sure, priests bless water, but they can't change its structure so that it suddenly includes a cat when needed. There's authorship here. 
and flexibility. Which brought me back to something Rabbi Eric said. You know, there's a wonderful Jewish text in the Talmud which talks about whether this oven is is pure or impure. And at one point, God, God's self, enters into the argument and says that the oven should be seen this way in support of one rabbi. And the other rabbis say, no, that view is outvoted. That view is not correct. And on the one hand, it's totally ridiculous. Like, how do you outvote God? How do you say that God is wrong in this debate? On the other hand, I think there's something really beautiful about that. It's saying that our human ingenuity is a gift to us and something that we are supposed to do something with in the world. This is domain in which we can express holiness. Those are really the paragraphs that I wanted to cover. I, you know, I trust you, you trust me. The rest of this is really kind of just boilerplate, you know, typical, typical. We've let the lawyers handle it. A lot of billable hours. I think that we can get to the signing. Okay, I'm going to actually e-sign this because it's very 5782. Okay, and it says we have witness one. So let's have Josh. Josh, why don't you e-sign this? You want to type your name in here, Josh? Yep. Okay, Josh Cross has entered his name into the record. Okay, we're getting official. I'm going to drop it in Slack. With the contract signed, it was time for some of that human ingenuity. It would be great to do some sort of exchange to make this feel more real, uh, especially because we are, yeah, both just sitting on Zoom. According to this contract, I am purchasing all of your homemates according to uh, a pre-established total amount of $18. I hear that's an auspicious uh, number to use. But but what I'm going to do is Venmo you a down payment of $1. Uh, okay, so I'm going to find you on Venmo. Okay, Robert Scaramuccia paid you $1 for a smirking cat emoji. All right. And now just... You know, as a token of your good faith, Stephanie, yes, uh, I, I, I would love to see a, a picture. If you could send me a picture of 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 my new cat. <laughs> okay, hold on. I'm texting it to you right now. How does he look? <laughs> it says, "Hi, Dad." Amazing. This is great. Who who knew that jurisprudential creativity could look so adorable? Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you, thank you for sending me a picture of my new cat. The real question is what his new name will be. I believe that the the real man, Cat Stevens, changed his name to Yusuf Islam. Uh, this cat could be Yusuf Islam. <laughs> Yusuf Islam. Yusuf is. I th- I think that we can workshop it. I believe we can do this, Robert. It's yeah. been a pleasure doing business with you, and enjoy that cat. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I feel like I should have uh, asked some questions about whether he's a nice cat. Nope. Or it doesn't very, matter. No. That's, signed, sealed, now. delivered. Yep, it's been e-signed. No backsies. <laughs> Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. 
As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uomember and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Now, look, we are now well into our podcast Seder. We've sung the table of contents. We've made sure that our houses are very clean. Now we are getting down to ritual, including one that I really had no idea even existed. And it involves fasting and reading books. So here I am grappling with text and snacks. came up with the idea for this episode, I realized I was in a bit of a pickle. The concept, after all, was getting back to basics, leaning on tradition, doing things you've never done before, or at least haven't done in a very long time. And me, well, I'm the bearded guy in the group, more orthodox than un. Passivers in my family are hardcore. We search for chametz with a feather and a candle. We read the whole Haggadah, even the part that comes way after the meal. And we add poems and song lyrics and other decidedly modern commentaries of our own, making the ancient texts feel modern and the modern stuff feel timeless. So what, I wondered, what could I possibly do to lean in even more on tradition? So I did what any good nerd would do. I hit the books. And that's when I was reminded about Ta'anit Bechorot. Hebrew for the fast of the firstborn, it's mentioned in Tractate Sufrim, one of the minor and non-canonical parts of the Talmud or collection of Jewish oral law. The firstborn, it tells us, are obliged to fast on the day of the Passover Seder, from sunrise until the festive meal is served. Why? Well, it's sort of obvious, ain't it? There is no magic cure 
no spell to use. He is the firstborn of Pharaoh. We have no skill before this pestilence. It's all very straightforward. Hashem smote the firstborns of Egypt and spared the lot of us Jewish firstborns, which is why we should take a moment before we imbibe those four cups of wine and give thanks. So there it was, my new old tradition, the one thing I haven't done yet and could now do to make this Passover extra meaningful. I was getting ready too fast. a minute just there. Why? I mean, if God spared the firstborns of the Jews, and if you're a Jewish firstborn, shouldn't you, like, be happy? Shouldn't you be entitled to a, I don't know, a fifth cup and a good l'chaim, celebrating the fact that you weren't, you know, dead? Back to the books it was only to discover that no greater rabbinic authority than the 19th century eminence, the Chatam Sofer, whose son, coincidentally, was my own great-great-grandfather's teacher, had similar thoughts. The Jews were spared, the Chatam Sofer wrote in one of his seminal works, so why no party? To even attempt to answer this question, you have to know two things about firstborns in the Bible. First. For our forefathers, being first was sort of a big deal. Which one of my sons are you? I am Esau, your firstborn, and I have done what you told me. Please sit up and eat the meat I have brought. Then you can give me your blessing. Come closer so I can touch you and make sure that you really are Esau. I mean, the entire Jewish people are named Israel, which is the nickname of Jacob, who only rose to prominence after he cheated his older brother out of his birthright. That's how much it mattered. To be the firstborn meant you got to inherit the best parts, not only of your father's possessions, but also of his title and spiritual heritage. It mattered a lot. How much? That brings us to the second thing you need to know. Originally, the idea was that every Jewish family would give up its firstborn son to God and that these boys would all serve in the ancient Hebrew temple in Jerusalem. It was a good plan while it lasted, which wasn't very long. Watching the Israelites prance around the golden calf, Moses realized that it took a special sort of character to stay true and pure which is how we got a special class of divine servants, the Kohanim, or priests. And that, the great 20th century Rabbi Shlomo Zalman Oyerbach teaches us, is the real reason why firstborns fast on Passover. Passover was the day in which the priests were busiest with sacrifices. And the poor firstborns, seeing and smelling all that roasted meat being offered up to God, they must have felt terrible knowing that it could have been them up there in the temple, all decked up in white and manning the grill in the world's holiest barbecue. So terrible that they could do little else but fast, 
thinking about what might have been if their ancient ancestors weren't so hooked on all things golden and bovine. Okay, so this made sense. I was supposed to feel sad because I couldn't be a priest in the temple. But there hasn't been a temple in nearly 2,000 years, so where exactly did that leave me? What were my responsibilities as a firstborn now that the notion of being shipped off to Jerusalem to keep the altar smoking was out of the question? I'm an only child, so being firstborn is sort of a cheat in my case. I'm also the only born. I needed some wisdom on what it meant to be the oldest, how those who arrived first and had siblings saw their sacred duties. So I turned to two of the wisest authorities I know. My children, Lily, age 10, and Hudson, age 8. So, Lily, I'm trying to understand this idea of firstborns and what kind of responsibilities they have and how how they see their place in the family. Have you given it any thought? No, not really, because I try not to think about whether that I was born first or not. But I like to think that sometimes that, like, I get to stay up later than my brother or I get electronics before my brother. As you look up and contemplate your firstbornness, do you have any resolutions, anything that you want to think about and really try to do? Um, I would like to, like, try to work on keeping my temper and, like, if Hudson does something that annoys me, no matter like how small, I would like to like be able to hold my temper in better. As the younger brother, do you have any pointers for Lily how to be a better firstborn, a better bigger sister? No, she's the best sister ever. I was thrilled to hear things were going well with those two, but... I didn't quite feel like I got the answer I was looking for. If I was going to fast, it needed to be about something more than being grateful that I have an iPad. I needed to find some deeper meaning for fasting. Or, you know, find a way not to fast at all. And apparently, you could get out of fasting by reading a book. You know, it, it is a fascinating question because we don't have that with other fasts. You can't say on Yom Kippur, well, let's say I read the prayers. Do I have to fast? Or any of the other uh, minor fast days, for that matter. We don't say that reading takes the place of fasting. That's Dr. Erica Brown. She's the director of the Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs Hernstein Center for Values and Leadership at Yeshiva University. So I called her up to learn about this magical loophole. Study a text you love. And presto changeo, you could throw yourself a siyum or completion, a festive meal marking the end of studying a beloved book, usually a Talmudic tractate, a festive meal that means you don't have to fast. It has something to do with the particular time that we're in. We just welcomed the month of Nisan. And on Chodesh Nisan, we don't say certain supplicatory prayers that put us in an existential, rather broken and vulnerable state of mind. We sort of embrace the happiness of the time. And I think fasting generally is a very ancient, very biblical response to tragedy. And so on the one hand, we note the tragedy of the death of firstborn in Egypt, 
And at the same time, that's not the death of us. It's the beginning of us. And so there's something about beginnings that's represented by the Hadron, the Siyum and the Hadron. What do we say in Hadron? I will return to you. Hadar in Aramaic is to return. Texts influence our lives and we're constantly returning to them. And when we return to them, it's not that the text changes, but that we change and therefore our interpretation of it changes. So in a certain way, if you wanted to participate in a communal ritual that notes the death of something and the beginning of something, you can understand this sort of charming jump from fasting to actually learning, completing and continuing. That made perfect sense. And it left me with clear marching orders. Find a book I loved, study it, celebrate a seum, no fast necessary. But which book should I study? That wasn't so easy. I could turn to the Talmud, the obvious choice, but I have this other podcast, Take One, where we read one page of Talmud a day anyway, so I can't really claim that I've been studying it, especially for Passover. That would be cheating, and cheating is something you do not want to do the day before Passover, what with the big guy being very clear that slaying firstborns is definitely on the agenda. So instead, I decided to turn to my favorite book. And favorite book is an understatement. This one is an obsession, a lifelong dedication. The reason I taught myself French and immersed myself in the lives of obscure 19th century composers and contemplated bidding on original manuscripts I couldn't even remotely begin to afford. Marcel Proust's masterpiece, In Search of Lost Time. What's it about? It's complicated, so complicated that it's literally the sole subject of a great Monty Python skit. Newport for this year's finals of the All England Summarized Proust competition. As you may remember, each contestant has to give a brief summary of Proust's A la Recherche du Tom Perdu, once in a swimsuit and once in evening dress. I could talk about this book all day long and tomorrow too. I could tell you all about its truth and beauty that won't be relearning, and I won't be doing the thing I set out to do here. So I sat myself down, poured myself some nice Bordeaux, and read, and read, and read. And then I called one of the very few people whose thinking and writing about Proust unfailingly delights me, the author of the masterful Call Me By Your Name, and other books that have brought me immense joy. The novelist Andre Asimov. Teach me, I asked him. Teach me about our beloved Proust. Well, most of us think of Proust as the man who is devoted to memory, to the Dreyfus case, to his semi-Jewish background, which he is Jewish, his mother was Jewish. We, we also think of him as a homosexual, as a person who led a very reclusive life, basically spending the rest of his life remembering that wonderful life or that life that made sense to him via the book that he was writing. So that life was not that beautiful, but at the same time, he found beauty in it. 
precisely by writing about it in a style that remains unforgettable and probably the very best style that any writer of any epoch has ever matched or could match, put it that way. There is, however, one aspect of him that I find unbelievably strong, and I've been devoting my time to doing that. It's what I call, pardon me, the chicken moment. You would never associate that with Proust, but there are scenes in Proust where he is basically analyzing the perverse or cruel motives of a character. And the first such moment that I can remember is the one where his maid, Françoise, uh, is killing chickens. And as she's killing the chicken, and that is not irrelevant to Passover because after all, we do drink chicken soup on that night. But she's basically not just killing the chicken, she is murdering it. And she says to the dying chicken, die, you filthy beast, die. And you never would say, think that this is typical of Francoise because the product of that awful, wretched moment turns out to be the wonderful chicken with the sweetest sauces that one could ever imagine being cooked by this woman who essentially committed murder. And, and so he was very interested in those contradictions. He's always interested in contradictions. But the chicken moment is essentially those moments that we all remember when we read Proust. Yes, we remember that he had a madman and that from the madman he would resurrect his entire past. But that's not really the real Proust that I have become totally fascinated by. I am fascinated by the man who describes a girl in the kitchen who is forced to cook and to peel asparagus because Francoise is the boss, of course, she's the head cook in the household, and she forces that poor girl to sort of, what is it, éplucher, uh, to basically peel or clean the asparagus. And she knows that the girl is, as, is allergic to asparagus, and she was eventually forced to quit her job at the Proust household because she couldn't stand the asparagus that were actually beautifully cooked every night. These are the moments that basically ring so powerfully with me today. In a year or two from now, I will probably move to something else. But there are millions of scenes like this where it is the tangible, unforgettable moments of plot that, and they're really, truly plot, a brute plot that sort of ring true to me. And they are the, the most magical thing about Proust today. And there it was. I wasn't just reading to meet my obligation and avoid the minor unpleasantness of a few hours without a nosh. I wasn't even indulging in some interesting but pleasantly minor tradition. Instead, I was getting right to the heart of the matter. Passover, Andre helped me realize, was the chicken moment writ large. In the middle of the glories of the Exodus, Hashem wants us to see him in his most murderous, taking those innocent firstborns of Egypt and smiting them. When we celebrate the delectable dishes served at our Seder table, none sweeter than freedom, 
we are commanded also to remember the moment that preceded it, far darker and more ominous, the moment of slaughter. One is never possible without the other. Why? Oachim, a noted 18th century rabbi, offered an answer, and no surprise there, it had to do with, you guessed it, us firstborn. The point of the tenth plague, he wrote, wasn't about killing the firstborn of Egypt. It was about asking the Israelites to offer a sacrifice to God and use the blood to mark their doorsteps so that Hashem knows which homes house Jewish children, which homes should be passed over. In taking this step, Oachim wrote, the Israelites rose to the occasion. They took action. They offered the sacrifice and in doing so, set themselves apart from their wicked neighbors who happily benefited from an evil empire predicated on Hebrew slavery. God obviously didn't need the blood on the doorposts to tell the Jews apart from all the others. The Creator is omnipotent. He is all-knowing. He doesn't need a primitive form of ID to help him on his vengeful task. The marks on the doorposts weren't for him. They were for the Israelites inside, who had to make a decision about what kind of people they wanted to be. Did they want to continue and live in fear and subjugation? Or did they want to live like firstborns with all the privileges, but also, as my 10-year-old will tell you, all the responsibilities that go with it? They chose wisely. They chose to be firstborn. And we're all here because they did. Now, if you've been to even one Seder in your life, you know that the highlight, the point everyone's waiting for, is the bit about the four sons, right? And one reason why it's so exciting is because at some point, inevitably, someone's going to have to read the part of the wicked son. Some people fear that part of the Haggadah, but some people love it. People like our producer, Josh Cross, who used to revel in reading the part of the wicked son at his family's Seder until he had a wicked son of his own. Here is Josh grappling with children asking difficult questions. One of my favorite parts of my family's Passover seders was when we got to the section with the four children and their questions, which, as far as I read it, is a perfect lesson in how we pass down our traditions. My grandpa Steve used to lead our seders. He was just about my favorite person in the world, and each year he'd make a big show of assigning each of his grandkids one of the four parts to read. Some families just go in age order, but he always assigned roles based on personality. There's the wise child, who asks about the meaning behind the laws and traditions we are commanded to follow. This one went to my cousin Lindsay, because frankly, she's the smartest of his grandchildren. There's the simple one, who asks what it is that we do on Passover. This generally went to my sister. She's not simple, but she usually wound up with this one because it was the only one left by the time he got to her. Now, 
There were only three of us grandchildren, so the role of the child who doesn't know how to ask either went to the dog or someone who had finished their four glasses of wine a little too early or just whomever grandpa wanted to pick that night. This, of course, left me. Each year, with a wry smile, good old Gramps assigned the role of the wicked one to me. It was fair. Back then, I was definitely the wicked child. I was your typical know-it-all teenager. Who am I kidding? That probably started when I was five. And I was certain that I already knew everything about, well, everything. I imagine we all know someone who was like that. Anyway, the wicked child asks, what does this ritual mean to you? It's a question that can be read a few different ways. Seriously, what does this ritual mean to you? Sarcastic, what does this ritual mean to you? Or even snotty, what does this ritual mean to you? All of these, however, get at the same idea. The wicked child challenges the meaning of Passover for all of us. The wise and simple children each get direct answers to their questions and as much information as they can ostensibly handle. The wicked child actually gets the same answer as the one who doesn't know how to ask. These children are supposed to be told, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And then comes the kicker. The wicked child is also told that, based on their question, had they been in Egypt, they wouldn't have been worth redeeming. Like a lot of people, this part of the answer always bugged me. I thought, as a Jew, I'm supposed to be asking questions and challenging things. Isn't that what we do? Well, this wicked child grew up and had a few children of my own, and wouldn't you know, my 17-year-old son is exactly like me. This wicked child begat a wicked child. I couldn't be more proud of my questioning pain-in-the-ass kid. I realized that there had to be a better explanation for understanding these four archetypes, one that doesn't crap all over the wicked child. I've always, always loved the four children because I think they're the perfect way to open up the telling of the story. That's Rabbi Sari Laufer from L.A.'s Stephen Wise Temple. By having these four archetypes, these four children sort of open up the telling of the Seder, it's saying there is a place for all of your intelligences, for all of your questions, for all of your different lenses in our telling of the story and in our reliving of the experience. You know, in some ways, each of us are each of the four children. Okay, let's get to the part about me. The question of the wicked child is taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 26. And the Hebrew is maha avodah hazot lachem, meaning what is this avodah, sort of sacred work? What is this rite or ritual? Lachem, it's the second person plural, right? To y'all is actually how I would probably best translate it. I don't think there's like an inherent utziness to it. I don't think it's inherently meaning I'm not a part of that, y'all. I, I sort of imagine it as someone going to the people who know more, right, who've been doing it longer, who seem to really care about it and saying like, what's this all about to you? Why do you love it so much? This isn't that interesting to me, but I want to know why it is to you, right? Maybe it'll change my point of view. That's not where the rabbis go with it. And the rabbinic explanation is literally, it says this in Mos Hakadot for me and not for you, because if you had been there, you wouldn't have been redeemed, which is like the most devastating answer I think you can give to a child who is wondering, right? To say, your question puts you so far out of the pale of this conversation that like you wouldn't have been redeemed. I find it such a painful answer. Your job as a parent is to help your child 
find themselves in the world and know who they are in the world in relationship to family, to history, to the present moment, saying to a child, your question, and the Seder is based on the notion of question, your question is so far beyond the pale, you don't have a place in this story, based on a reading of a text that doesn't actually say that. You're literally not a part of our family, national, faith story. Here's the thing. Our tradition teaches that we were all at Sinai, and the wicked child is at the Seder. So obviously they were worth it. It seems like the role this question plays is to challenge the asker and the person who is going to try and answer it. Right. I mean, I think we can read it, right? Because the, the language in the Haggadah, again, not in the Torah, doesn't say this anywhere in the Torah, is that if you had been in Egypt, you wouldn't have been redeemed. But right. But you are here now. Maybe there's a double onus, right? Maybe there's a little bit of parent. Think of a better way to answer that kid. And also kid, teenager especially, like, what does it look like to you to, to be a part of this story going forward, right? What does it mean to you to know, like, whatever would have happened way back then, you're here now. And, and what are you going to do with that? Like, give you a little bit of freedom to, to figure that out. And also, I think the wicked child is also the one who's struggling with their identity and their place in the world, which, you know, is a profound and important struggle and brings you to a different place in your life. Whereas the wise child who's like, yeah, I got it. I know who I am. Doesn't question as much. And I don't I don't know that that's a good thing. That's just that is a settled thing. So to put a finer point on it, really, the wicked child is the wisest. The wicked child's the deepest, maybe. Yeah. I wanted to ask my own wicked child, 17-year-old Miles, what he thought about Passover. It's not easy to get a teenager to talk to you and answer your probing or boring questions. So I waited until we were in the car, on the highway, with the doors locked. So, does Passover and the traditions mean anything to you? I think culturally, yes. But I think it represents, you can find good and bad and bad and good and that at the end of the day, you have to persevere. You can believe that the guy put his stick down and the, the ocean split, but you could also just look at it as a cultural value. Like, I don't think that it's more valuable to someone who actually believes there is a sea splitting event. Right. It turns out he's thought about this before. And not just this, but other ways that the Seder deals with outsiderness. When I brought up some of the newer holiday traditions, like adding an orange to the Seder plate to represent LGBT Jews, my wicked child surprised me. I think that the holiday is meant to celebrate something and that there's nothing in the holiday that's, you know, I mean, you can make an argument to add an orange or whatever. You can put whatever grows in spring, put a, put a daffodil on the plate, all <laughs> I care. Um, but I personally think that if you feel the need to add something for people that aren't explicitly represented, but nothing explicitly excludes them. If you have to add an extra marker to make it ex inclusive, then you're basically saying that the people you're including are not included in the initial one, which isn't true. I think that the orange is not necessary. Okay. You know, if, if you want to add an orange because you feel excluded, fine. I don't know. I have to think about the right way to phrase That's it. Fine. Give me five minutes. Take, take what you need. Can I say anything or should I shut up? Shut up. Okay. Eventually, this led to a long disjointed conversation about what he was trying to say. 
which is essentially this. If people don't feel included in the holiday, just putting an orange on the Seder plate won't fix it. But all of the people some might consider outsiders, the wicked children, the people who challenge what we believe in practice, they're already part of the story. That the rabbis who implied that some Jews would not have been redeemed are wrong. Because we are all here. We were all there at Sinai, and we're all here now. Our existence is proof of our inclusion. The wicked child's question poses a challenge to the person who is to answer. Show me that you know I belong. Because like it or not, I'm here. And the whole point of Passover is remembering the past of the culture and the past of the people. No one is supposed to get excluded for being part of like the orange community. Promise. You know what I'm saying. I do, exactly, and you got You're the devaluing it for yourself if you have to add something to include yourself because then you're saying that your exclusion was inherent to the religious and cultural experience. You are letting your experience be defined by other people rather than your own exploration of the culture. There. So I asked him if it was still important to him to celebrate Passover. A lot of Passover is value-based and culture-based and tradition-based, and not that much has to do with actually like the religious part. Chances are you have nothing better to do and that if you want to retain any amount of culture, because if you're uncultured, you're kind of a lame person, then you should, even if you don't believe in it. So the short answer to my question is... <sighs> yes? <laughs> Just say it, yes, we should do it. Yes, we should do it. Say it normal. Yes, we should do it. Please. Yes, we should do it. All right, thanks, dude. Perfect. Really? No. We're almost at the end of our Seder. The food is coming, I promise. But we can't end things without hearing from Mark, who grew up going to all kinds of seders, from fairly traditional ones where they used the Maxwell House Haggadah to left-wing liberation seders with lots of Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger tunes. But one thing always stayed the same. Listen as Mark gets to the bottom of the one thing without which you may not conclude the seder, the mysterious, mystical, magical Afikoman. If there's one holiday that you remember from your Jewish childhood or one holiday that you celebrated with Jews, even though you're not Jewish, it's probably Passover. And if there's one part of the Passover Seder that you remember from childhood, if there's one thing that sticks with you, even though you haven't done anything Jewish or anything with Passover for 20 or 50 years, it's the Afikoman. So I grew up with Seders. And I couldn't tell you that I remember much about the four cups of wine, and we didn't necessarily do the traditional songs afterwards. And I don't remember what Haggadah we used. It was kind of all a mishmash. But I do remember that after dinner, we had to go find the Afikoman. Now, as it turns out, that's just my family's tradition, but there's another tradition that also has its devotees, which is that instead of the kids having to find the Afikoman, in some families, the kids actually seize the afikoman and hold it ransom from the adults. 
So there are different traditions, but one thing is certain. You, like me, probably have no idea where these traditions come from. Afikoman is both the most central of rituals to the most central of Jewish holidays, and also, to most of us, kind of a mystery. I mean, think about it. We know why people fast on Yom Kippur to atone. We know what we're celebrating on Hanukkah, the miracle of the eight nights of the oil burning. And we basically know the story of Passover. But the afikoman, the piece of matzah that gets taken away and then gets returned either by the grown-ups or by the kids and somebody gives somebody money, where on earth did this come from? It's not like they did this in Egypt. Well, this year I wanted to find out. And so I sought out one of our great master teachers, a friend of the show, Rabbi David Bashevkin, and I said to him, Reb David, where the Fabrengen did this tradition come from? The word afikomen is a, can I use a fancy word, a neologism? Am I pronouncing that correctly? It is an invented word that combines two words, meaning afiku mun, which is Aramaic Greek for taking out the dessert. Afiku means to take out, and mana is like the dessert, like from the term mana from heaven. The food that God gave us in the wilderness. Exactly. Okay, so it's take out the mana, the dessert, the stuff that tastes really good. The dessert, exactly. Interesting, okay. So the afikoman first rears its head in the Talmud itself, where the Talmud describes the ending of the Seder, and the Talmud is written over a course of many centuries, but that dates the afikoman and the use of this term uh, well over a thousand years, even if you date the Talmud conservatively. It's well over a thousand-year-old term. And the way the Talmud talks about it is that this is the closing of the Seder. This is the final act. But the Talmud doesn't give us a lot of information about what exactly this closing act symbolizes. And it led to a whole host of interpretations that surround this closing event that people have suggested, what is its significance? I'm only going to give you one. And I think the significance is understood to be the Talmudic replacement for the actual closing ceremony of the Seder when we had the temple in Jerusalem where we would eat from the Paschal lamb, what's known in Hebrew as the Korban Pesach, the Paschal lamb. We would eat from it. But now we're sitting around our table and we don't have a temple in Jerusalem. We don't have sacrifices. So how can we symbolize and note that absence? And the way that we note that absence is by that final piece of matzah. Okay, so the matzah had been, you know, squirreled away somewhere earlier in the Seder. It was hidden. Do we know where that little ritual comes from of taking a piece of it and wrapping it up and hiding it somewhere to be brought out later as the final piece of matzah standing in for the sacrificial lamb? So that evolved a couple centuries later. I believe. And there are a whole lot of fun, almost silly rituals that surround that, which we can talk about in a little bit. But the the actual order is that Tzafun originally, Tzafun means hidden, and it's that last part of the Seder where we say we take that hidden piece. Initially, we wouldn't hide it. It was just the part that wasn't, it was the piece of the matzah that wasn't actively on the table. So we would call it like the hidden 
piece of matzah. But it wasn't initially hidden the way a lot of American and even European households do now. But it was given significance by that it wasn't presently on the table. It was aside. Okay, so the silly rituals at some point arose probably to keep the kids engaged, I'm guessing, right? If you if you hid it and then it was the children's job to find it, maybe that kept the children around till the end. What do you think of that interpretation? Well, the Swiss army knife of all Seder explanations when you don't know what is going on, you just say, it's so the children will ask. And here is no exception. This is definitely one of those instances of so the children will ask. It will keep them engaged and even more so will show them kind of the preciousness of matzah itself, where you really make an entire game surrounding the matzah. Some of the games were somewhat controversial. Not everybody appreciated the gamification of afikomen. There are really two ways that households have done this. One is that the kids hide it away And then you need to bargain for its location back. And, you know, you bargain by giving presents and treats. What's become known, I grew up with this term called the afikomen present. It's like one of those presents that are sprung onto Jewish parents. Like, do we have to do this? Is this this the reason why we're getting a ping pong table or some, uh, a power wheels toy, depending on, you know, what, what your custom is in your locale? A lot of other people don't hide it. It's the adults that hide it. And the adults store it away, and the kids now have to go look for it. So there's one custom where the kids snatch it and the kids hide it, and there's another custom where the adults deliberately hide it and the kids then have to squirrel around. I think you use that verb. I love the verb squirrel. They have to squirrel around and try to to find it. Both of these customs are centuries old, And both of them, on the most simple level, give a child a sense of excitement and participation in this final act of the Seder itself. See, and I didn't even know about the one where the children hide it and the parents have to buy it back with a ping pong table or a Tonka truck or a new pair of Spider-Man underwears. That I didn't know. I only knew the one where the adults hide it, the kids get it, and then get a prize for having discovered it. Whichever kid finds it then gets a prize for having found it. So the kids are competing against each other. So tell me, you said that these this gamification of the Seder has been controversial. Can you tell me about that? Why, where has it been controversial? Why has it been controversial? What have the objections been? So a bunch of rabbis have, again, when I say like they've come out against it, it wasn't in a glorious, like, op-ed, they, they they weren't, like, viciously against it. It wasn't, like, a major controversy. But there were some families that deliberately did not participate in this custom, and their concern was that this whole notion of stealing a piece of matzah at the table is going to condition children to take things without permission, to almost make it okay to steal and to hide things. And they felt that, you know what, like maybe the Seder shouldn't end with this ritual that kind of glorifies what we even call it colloquially, stealing the afikomen. Maybe that's not something that we should glorify 
in my home growing up when I was a kid, my father did not like the Afikoman game. He had other concerns about it where it wasn't so much the value of stealing. My father's kind of a little bit of a nervous Nelly when it comes to ritual. Uh, He wants to make sure that he can execute at the very highest of levels. And one year we hid the Afikoman. The kids took it and we hid it. And as kids do at the Seder, we all fell asleep and nobody could find it. And my father was like, never again. Like, this is the last time we're doing this. I wanted to make sure that I could eat the afikoman because I wanted to have that piece from the original broken matzo. So this is basically the, this is like the OCD version of Judaism where if he couldn't actually eat the final piece, as far as he's concerned, that Seder is still going on. It actually never ended because he never found that afikoman and it still bothers him. He's still awake at three in the morning saying that Seder from, you know, 1999 is still going on (laughs) because the kids fell asleep. I don't know where the matzah was. If my memory serves me correctly, it was not the Seder that went on forever, though my father may have continued it indefinitely. But I, I'm pretty sure he woke me up at like midnight and was like, David, you get me that Afikoman ASAP because we we got to end this Seder at some point and we got to find that piece. And I, 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 I something remember like a zombie walk through the house trying to remember where I stored it away. But I think for him, that was the main concern of like making sure that we could find that piece of matzah. And that to me is a more realistic concern. I think the concern of the value of stealing, I think most rabbis and families kind of said, you know what, like this is playful, it's joyful. This shows kids how to value and cherish the the Seder process itself. And that's really what the Seder is all about, of having that childlike spirit, not just for the children at the table, but evoking that childlike spirit even in the adults. And I think nothing, no ritual does that better than a grown adult, a mom and dad bargaining for Tonka trucks. I mean, you mentioned Spider-Man underwear. I don't think you're ever going to get your Afikoman back if underwear is your bargaining chip, no matter what's on it. But if you want your if you want your Afikoman back and you're a good bargainer, it brings joy not just for the children, but for the parents as well. And I think that's a part of the Seder experience. An Orthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by Mark Oppenheimer, Stephanie Butnick, and me, Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scarmuccia, and Quinn Waller. And our team includes Sarah Fredman-Ader, Doron Ruskay, and Tanya Singer. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi David Bashevkin, Rebetzin Rivka Slonim, Rabbi Sari Laufer, and Rabbi Eric Woodward. We come to you from the newly IRL offices of Tablet Studios in Midtown Manhattan, where we are dusting off our desks and getting back in the game, baby. Shalom, friends. Shalom, friends.